This is a section on sin. It's a section on sin. There is good news and there is bad news. This is the bad news. You've got to wait for the bad news before you get to the good news. There is good news, but we have to look at the bad news first. It's like the two baseball players, professional baseball players, and they were having a discussion one day about will there be baseball in heaven? And they both said, we don't know. We hope there's going to be baseball in heaven, but I'll tell you what, whoever dies first, the other will go to heaven and then we'll come back and let the other person know. Sure enough, one of them died, came back a couple of days later, and he said to his friend, I've got good news and I've got bad news. The good news is, yes, there is baseball in heaven. The bad news is, is that you are scheduled to pitch next Thursday. <laughs> this is one of those passages of scripture that is bad news. It is bad news. And Paul begins to describe this particular section of scripture. You might want to say he is the prosecuting attorney. Imagine that we are in the courthouse in Grant County here, and we're in the superior chambers there, and there is God up on the dais. God is the judge. The Apostle Paul is a prosecuting attorney. And all of us in this room and all of humanity, we are on trial. And he builds this case point by point by point through this particular section on Scripture. And he says that we are, we are um, deserving of death, the death penalty, and here is why. Notice verse 18 with me. Look at this passage of Scripture again. He says, The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by God. Now he starts right off the bat with this, the wrath of God is being poured out against godliness, godlessness and wickedness. When you hear that word wrath, tell me, don't, don't you think like I do, when you hear that word initially, you think of God who is going to blow his stack. You think of God who is going to come down with his judgment and strike lightning bolts and thunder and burn people up to a crisp. When we think of the wrath of God, we often think of hellfire and brimstone. But that's not, it, that's not, uh, that's not the definition, and that's not what, what is happening here in this particular verse. You see, the wrath of God here that is being revealed is in the present tense. Do you see hellfire and brimstone? Do you see people getting burned up and zapped? No, you don't. But it's happening right now. But it's not happening often in the way we think. In fact, it's important that when we look at this particular word, wrath and anger, there are two Greek words associated with it. The first is thermos, where we get the word thermometer, thermometer, and it really means a blast of air. And so, and so yes, there is that type of anger that is uh, quick and that fries people, you might want to say, and that is 
explosive. Uh, we think of when an individual, a husband that is flies off the handle, they often throw things or they break windows or whatever it may be, and that's the Greek word thromos. But the Greek word that's used here for wrath is the second word, which is O-R-G-E in English, not orgy, but orgy. And this means a slow, controlled anger. Slow, controlled anger. It's settled. It's not impulsive. Why does God's wrath come against godlessness? Why does God's wrath come against uh, wickedness? Why does he get upset on that? He gets angry because sin destroys people. Sin destroys people. Let's say that you had a little next-door neighbor girl, 10 years old, and she was kidnapped, and she was abused, and she was murdered. You would be very upset. You would be very, very angry at the person and the perpetrator that did this. When anybody does anything that destroys another person and destroys himself, the Bible says that God gets upset at it, upset at it because it destroys life, because it twists creation. And I want you to notice the object of God's wrath. Look at it with me one more time, verse 18. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and the wickedness of people. You say, Pastor Ron, what is godlessness? What is wickedness? Well, let me give you a definition. Godlessness is living as though God does not exist. It is living as though God does not exist. Now, you may be a believer, but you can live in such a way that you don't really practice what you preach. And so it, you may be a believer or you may not believer, be a believer, but it is, it is living life as though you don't exist. A number of months ago, I ran into a, a person, and we were having a conversation about the Christian faith, and they basically said, well, I'm not a practicing Christian. And so they're fitting the bill of the definition of godlessness, which is living as though God does not exist. And Apostle Paul goes on and he gives three examples. He's building a case against humanity and he gives three examples of this godless type of behavior. Now notice the definition of wickedness. Wickedness is a person or an individual or a group of people who do not obey the rules and the regulations. They don't want anything to do with rules and regulations. They don't want anything to do with the Ten Commandments. They don't want to do anything with what God wants them to do. It would be like the person, have you seen those bumper stickers? They were very popular a number of years ago, and it said, the back of the bumper sticker, it read, screw guilt. Screw guilt. Basically, I'm my own God. I'm going to determine what I want to do, and nobody's going to tell me what to do, and therefore, I'm a God unto myself. Basically, this, these are what the individuals are saying. Now, do you remember... A couple of Sundays ago, we looked at chapter 2. We jumped ahead. And we said that there are self-righteous people who obey the rules and the regulations. They obey the letter of the law, but they completely ignore the spirit of the law. Well, those folks on one end, these people who are have wickedness in their life, they're on the other end because they don't want to do anything that is right whatsoever. 
They just want to do what they want to do, and who cares if it hurts themselves or hurts other people? And so, man is guilty of godlessness, he says, and man is guilty of wickedness. Now, I want you to notice in verse 19, he gives us three examples of godlessness, and this is what he says about godlessness. Look at verse 19 with me. Look at it with me. Since what may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them. What he's saying here is that it's unmistakable. It's unmistakable that God exists. Truly, there's not a single person in the whole world that does not know that God does not exist. And then he goes on and he gives proof of the fact that everyone knows that God exists. And it is found in his creation. God says, look at my creation. Look at my handiwork. You go on top of Strawberry Mountain. You go on top of Mount Baldy over here. You go up into the mountains. You come down to the tributaries of the John Day River. And you cannot deny that God does not exist. Look at his handiwork. Psalm 19.1 says, The heavens declare the glory of God. People say, I feel so close when I'm in nature. And the reason why is, is because we are experiencing God's handiwork and God's creation. And so it is unmistakable. And number two, it is universal. It is universal. Look at what he writes in verse 20 with me. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities... His eternal power and divine nature. Notice, it has been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that people are without excuse. All creation points to the fact that God is alive and that God is well. All we have to do is go down to South America. All we have to do is come to North America. All we have to do is go to the African continent, Asia, all of Europe. All of God's creation, all around the world, points to the fact that God exists and that God is alive and that God is well. And the third thing I want you to note that he says here, it is undeniable. It is undeniable. Notice he says, men are without excuse. Look at the last part of verse 20 there. So that people, men and women and boys and girls, are without excuse. Did you know that the Aborigines in uh, Australia, that those Stone Age tribes down in Brazil, the rainforests of Brazil, and that those people in Papua New Guinea that are Stone Age tribes, if they're still in existence today, did you know that they don't have all the revelation? They don't have all the truth. But truly, they understand that there is a creator. They understand it. It's universal. It's undeniable. And there are people all around the world who know that God exists. They know God intuitively exists because of this God-shaped vacuum and because of all of God's creation. They may not have a full understanding. They may not understand it completely, but they know intuitively that God exists. And therefore, Paul says, there is no excuse they have never found a civilization of atheists. Did you know that? 
they have never found a civilization of atheists. Although the religion may be distorted and way off the truth, archaeologists say they can find cities without walls, they can find cities without buildings, uh, they can, excuse me, they can find cities without walls, buildings, and public areas, but they've never found a city without some sort of temple or worship area because God has made people intuitively to know that he exists. And so he's making this case. He says wrath, God's wrath has been poured out against people, people that are godless and people that are wicked. Godlessness is the root, he's saying. It's the root of this. And the fruit of godlessness is wickedness. Individuals and people say, I don't care. I'm still going to do what I want to do. I'm going to live as though God doesn't exist anymore. And people are often uh, intellectually, you might want to say, dishonest. We were in our first pastorate. And there was a couple that came to our church. He was a full-blooded Cherokee Indian. She was a Caucasian lady. His name was Paul, and her name was Dolores. She was a sweet lady. It was her second marriage, and I think it was his second or third marriage. And they were struggling because he was a recovering alcoholic, and he would drink for a while, and then he would go out, go out, you know, he'd go off the deep end, and then he would stop drinking, and they were really struggling. And we worked with that couple, and worked with them, and worked with them. And I'll never forget having a conversation with him after church and we were sitting by ourselves and we were talking about this particular subject and he looked at me and he said, you know, Pastor, i got to tell you a story. He said, my grandfather, when I was a little boy, took me out on top of a mountain. He took me on the top of this mountain and he said, Paul, I want you to look around and I want you to see all of this beauty around us, all of the trees and look at the birds and look at the sky. And he said, Paul, don't be like these young Indian uh, yahoos who worship Mother Earth and God's creation. The Creator is the one you worship. And He is the one that has created all of this. And he looked at me and said, my grandfather wasn't even a Christian man, but he had enough insight to know that God existed, and he's the one that created his creation. So what does man do with this knowledge? What does man do with this godlessness and this wickedness? Well, first of all, Paul goes on and he says, man represses, they re he represses the truth about God, and this is exhibit A in Paul's court case against Humanity. They repress the truth about God. Notice verse 18 one more time, the last part. Who suppress the truth about God? In other words, they try to ignore it. They try to bury it. They try to restrain it. Do you remember the big problem in Watergate a number of years ago? It wasn't that the, it wasn't that the Nixon administration didn't do it. It was that they tried to cover it up, and that's often... What people do with the truth, they look at the truth, they know it intuitively, but they repress the truth, they push it down. 
Paul says, again, people are intellectually dishonest because they try to suppress the truth. The second thing he says is that they reject the truth. They reject the truth outright. Look at verse 21. For all they may, although they knew God, they intuitively know who God is. They know that God has created all the creation. Although, although they knew God, they neither glorified Him as God nor gave thanks to Him. But their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. They rejected the truth right out. They refused to give God glory and they refused to give God honor and praise and gratitude to Him. Can I just digress a little bit this morning? Let me give you a tip about philosophy. And let me give you a tip about uh, Nietzsche. And let me give you a tip about nihilism. And let me give you a tip about communism and about Karl Marx and about Freud. When you study these individuals, Kierkegaard and Nietzsche and Freud, you will see that these individuals trying to justify their lifestyle, they built a philosophy because they wanted to do what they wanted to do. Karl Marx died of VD. Nietzsche, who created nihilism, the first one who said, God is dead, that affected Adolf Hitler, committed suicide. You see, when you leave God out of the equation and you become God unto yourself, you can try to justify any way that you want, any lifestyle that you want. But this leads to death and destruction. And the Apostle Paul says these individuals, they refuse to humble themselves before God. They refuse to give thanks to God. And ingratitude is an offense to God. No matter how smart or how dumb we are, anybody can be grateful. The savage in the wilderness, when their limited understanding of God, can be grateful. Remember, I always think about the ten lepers. Jesus encountered these lepers with this awful, terrible, skin-rotting disease. They were social outcasts. They were dregs of their society. When you were downwind from a group of healthy people, you were supposed to yell, unclean, unclean, unclean. And Jesus looked at these ten lepers. He approached them. I like to think that he embraced them. He loved on them. And the Bible says that Jesus Christ healed every single one of those lepers from the top of, his, top of their head to the bottom of their feet. But guess what happened? Only one came back and expressed thanksgiving and thankfulness to God. Only one. The other nine-tenths did not do that. Well, not only does man reject the truth and repress the truth, but number three, I want you to notice, he replaces the truth totally, completely, totally changes the whole story, replaces the truth. And this is the inevitable consequence. When you repress the truth and you reject the truth, you finally replace it, and they made their own gods. Look at verse 22 with me. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools. Verse 23, and exchanged 
the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal human beings, birds and animals and reptiles. You say, Pastor Ron, how could people do such a thing? The reason why is, is because they did not acknowledge God in the first place. They're trying to come up with a different story of who God is. They want, they want to be as God. They want to control God. They want to do what, they want to have God around when, when it's convenient. And so they make these little stone images or idols or whatever it may be. And they can put God in the corner someplace and they can pray to their God and feel good about themselves. And then they can leave it or they can tell the God what they want to, what the God should do and what the God should think and every, they, they completely replaced the Almighty God from some, for some sort of stone, wooden image. And did you know that educated people still do that today? Did you know that? Maybe it's not, maybe their idols are not out of, uh, made out of wood or, or stone, but they're certainly made out of plastic and metal and uh, cars and houses and nice clothes and things that people often idolize. Anything can become number one in our life. Anything can become our God. And we read in Exodus, of course, 20, verses 3 and 4, Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Thou shalt make no graven images. And you go to these metropolitan um, art museums. Have you ever been in a major city, and you go to these, and they've got these uh, statues, uh, these golden, uh, or excuse me, these stone statues. And it's a piece of artwork. <laughs> and it is not a piece of artwork. It, it's, uh, it's an idol. It's an idol. Idolatry. Replacing God. And so the Apostle Paul is building this case. And he said... He says, man is guilty of wickedness. And so again, when you repress the truth, reject the truth, replace God, it automatically causes all kinds of problems in our lives, not only with our vertical relationship with God, but horizontally with fellow man. And I want you to notice the result of all this, of this wickedness. Your own self-made man, your own rules, whatever it may be. Look at verse, uh, look at verse 24. It says, God gave them over to sinful desires of their heart. Verse 26, God gave them over to shameful lusts. Verse 28, God gave them over to a depraved mind. Now, what does it mean to give somebody over? What does it mean when God gave them over. What does that mean? Does it mean that God quits on them? Does it mean that God doesn't love them anymore? Does it mean that God just thinks they're hopeless? Does it mean that they just need to be thrown away someplace? No, it doesn't mean any of these things. What does it mean when it says that God gave them over? Well, let me explain it like this. Let's say that you have a 19-year-old son in your house, and this 19-year-old son, all of a, all of a sudden, seemingly overnight, 
begins to drink, begins to party, begins to do drugs, begins to stay out all night, and you talk to them, you sit down and you counsel with them, everything else, but they don't want to change their lifestyle. And so finally, you say, this is it. I've given you warnings. I've told you what I want you to do, etc., etc., and therefore I'm going to let you go. You can no longer live in my house anymore. What did you do? You gave them over to their choices and you gave them over to the decisions that they're making. Are you not? Yes, you are. Are you glad you did it? No. Did you want to do it? Absolutely not. But you've given them a free will and you've given them a free choice. And did you know the prodigal son is all about this? The prodigal son came to his dad one day and said, Dad, I want all of my inheritance, every dime that belongs to me. I want half of my inheritance. And the Bible says that he went out and he sold wild oats, wine, women, and song, did the whole thing. And after a short period of time, he was left with no money, no possessions, and he was left in a pig pen someplace feeding the pigs. And he came to his senses. And he said, my father's hired hands are better off than I am. And so I'm going to go home and ask my father to be a hired hand. And you know the story of the prodigal son. When he rounded the bend, the prodigal son, his father came running toward him and embraced him and loved him and treated him like a lost son that he was. And so when we read that phrase that God gives them over, we don't see hellfire and brimstone. We don't see people being zapped right and left. The wrath of God is being revealed when God turns them over and people, listen to this, don't miss it, when people reap the natural, are you listening? The natural consequences of their choices. When you reap the natural consequences of your choices, that's what means that God is turning people over. You let your son, you let your daughter go. You don't want to do it. But they have a free will and they have a free choice. And so they go out and they ruin their life. Their teeth begins to fall out because of the, all the meth they're taking. They begin to have sleepless nights. They have big bags underneath their eyes. That's the natural consequence. And so God says... I turn these people over. I turn them over. And what does he give them? What does he turn them over to? First of all, I want you to notice Paul says he gives them over to immoral passions. Immoral passions. Look at verse 24. They have these sinful desires. God gave them over to sinful desires, to impurity, the degrading of their bodies with one another. Some people want to go out and sow wild oats and then they pray for a crop failure. Notice verse 25, they exchange the truth of God for a lie. In Greek, it literally means the lie. And the greatest, biggest lie, of course, is found in Genesis chapter 3, where the devil says to Eve, you can become as God. I'm 
the master of my fate. I am the master of my own choices. I can do what I blinkly blink will do. But there are consequences for your choices. The wrath of God is being revealed because God turns you over. He allows the natural consequences of those choices to occur in our lives. It's like the guy who jumped off the Empire State Building and he's 20 stories down and someone yells out the window, Hey, how are you doing? And he said, Well, okay, thus far. And there is a time when that person hits the bottom. And some of you can testify about the time you hit the bottom and you finally reaped the consequences of your choices. And so God gave them over to immoral passions. And second, God gave them over to indecent perversions. Indecent perversions. I want you to uh, look at verse 26. He says, shameful, unnatural, indecent perversions. You know, the Roman church, they didn't need any explanation for this because they lived in this society. They lived in this world. The first 14 out of 15 Caesars were homosexuals. People say it's a sickness. I, I think it's a choice. It's obvious that a male body and a female body were made for one another. It's a learned behavior, and I think it can be unlearned. Look at verse 27. The man abandoned natural relations. And notice this phraseology that's used here in verse 27. Look at it with me. Verse 27, notice. We're inflamed. If you'd like to circle, circle that. Inflamed with lust for one another. Now, I did some research on this, and it's very, very interesting because the Greek word for inflamed means burnt out. You say, Pastor Ron, what does it have to do with me? And what does it have to do with these individuals who are caught up in their lifestyle? Don't they have a free will and don't they have a free choice? They do. They do. But the terminology that the Apostle Paul uses here means, and I'm not just talking about homosexuality, I'm talking about any kind of perversion. There's a level where you go that you cannot be satisfied. You cannot be satisfied. You've got to go to another partner, and you've got to go to another partner, and you've got to go to another partner, and pretty soon they become burnt out. You cannot tell me the limited amount of friends. I have a number of friends that are caught up in the alternative lifestyle. And the word gay is a misnomer because they aren't gay. They're not very happy. And it's a dead end. And so God turns them over. He doesn't want to. But that's a natural consequence. And number three, there are irrational practices. Irrational practices. Look at verse 28 with me. Furthermore, furthermore, since they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, he gave them over to a depraved mind to do what ought not to be done. And he's talking about a corrupted mind, people who do irrational things that shouldn't be done. Did you know that there are 21 sins here, cataloged here, 
J. Vernon McGee, the old exposition pastor preacher, calls this section sin arama because it all starts in the mind. The way you think affects the way you act. And there are people who are evil, greedy, full of malice, gossips, slanders, insolent, arrogant, senseless, faithless, heartless, ruthless. And this is the kind of culture. And this is the letter who he's writing to in the Roman culture. Who? A slave owner and a slave would look at a slave owner cross-eyed and the slave owner could kill their slave in the street for no reason at all. And where historians tell us that babies were thrown out in the streets like you would throw out garbage and litter. The Roman church knew all about godlessness, knew all about wickedness, knew that the wrath of God was being poured out in the sense that people suffered the natural consequences of their choices. This has got to be the most depressing text in the Bible. Don't you think so? It's got to be the most depressing text in the Bible. Is there any hope? Is there any hope? Romans chapter 5. If you want to flip over, go ahead. Romans chapter 5, verses 8 and 9. Or if you have a bulletin, you can look at that scripture on the front of the bulletin. Romans chapter 5, verses 8 and 9. But God demonstrated his love for us in this. While we were yet sinners, don't miss it. While we're yet sinners, Christ died for us. Since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more? (laughs) I love it. How much more? Come on, church. How much more shall we be saved from God's wrath? If it wasn't for God's grace... And if it wasn't for Jesus Christ, and if it wasn't for his death on the cross, we have no hope. One more passage of scripture. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Keep your finger here, Romans. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. And let's look at verses 9 through 11. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 through 11. And I want you to listen to what the Apostle Paul says here. Those of us who may be struggling with some sort of habit in our life, an area of sin that you cannot get rid of, a lifestyle that you don't like, but you keep falling back in the same sin, look at verses 9-11. through Are you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, the idolater, the adulterer, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkenness, nor slanders, nor swindlers, will not inherit what? The kingdom of God. Now, if we stop there, again, it would be depressing. And there are many pastors and preachers who like to lay it on real thick about how terrible and awful people are, about how we're all sinners. 
But notice, notice, he goes on in verse 11. And that is, and that is what some of you were. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. Can you imagine? Can you imagine being in the Corinthian church on the Lord's day, worshiping there? Or can you imagine being in the Roman church, worshiping there with those individuals and those people? And right in front of you was a former temple male prostitute. And right behind you is the town slanderer. And right to your right is the most notorious thief in the whole community. And right to your left... is that former alternative lifestyle person. What is the church? The church is a place for sinners. For sinners. It's only by God's grace that we can even Oh God. Oh, Lord. Paul says, such were some of you. I'm in that camp. Such were some of you. It's only by God's grace. Only by God's grace. Well, let me, I'm out of time. If you wouldn't mind, Don, going to the last section there. How to be Christian in an ungodly world. It's not imitation. It's not isolation. It's insulation. It's insulation. We don't isolate ourselves away from people. We don't hide in some corner. That sea bass that is caught in the ocean when you open it up, it doesn't have a salt taste. You have to salt it. It swims in the ocean all of its life. How come it doesn't have a salty taste? Because it's insulated from the world. Would you bow your heads with me and let's pray together.